0: Yeah, there we go. Fine. Okay. I find it interesting that today, it's rare today, to receive personal letters written from people. I can't remember the last time I received a personal letter from a person. Aside from the occasional card every now and then, I can't remember the last time I received one. Um, in, in, in light of uh, the computer, internet, email, text messages, and all of that stuff, we just don't sit down and write personal letters, and we don't receive personal written letters. And as I think on this, I can't imagine what a thrilling experience it was for the churches in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and chapter 3, to receive a personal letter written specific to, the, to them by Jesus Christ. I can't imagine what that would be like. Now, I know that all of Scripture is inspired and written by God. It's all for us. But can you imagine receiving a personal letter from the very Lord Jesus Christ and it's addressed specifically to this church? Think about it. To the church in Clearwater, Lakeside Community Chapel, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords says this. Can you imagine what that would be like to receive a personal letter? It must have been overwhelming for them at this time to hear from Jesus Christ in a very personal written letter. Now, I often wonder what would their emotional responses be like? No doubt there's awe and joy, but probably also there's probably some fear like, "Uh uh-oh, he knows, he knows, right? So I've studied the book of Revelation many times, and I used to teach it at the college. Um, But a few months ago, I started going through chapter two and chapter three just for a personal study to go back into details of this, these letters. And I'm thoroughly enjoying it. There's so much in these seven letters in chapter two and chapter three. And so what I wanna do is I wanna start a series for whenever Bruce allows me to teach to just work through these seven letters. I don't know when we'll end, it'll take a while, there's so much there. But um, I I wanna teach each time up here and just pick up from where we left off and go from there there's just so much to see in these two chapters and uh, in these seven letters but i want to give a brief introduction to these letters and then we'll get into the first letter the letter to the ephesians i wanted i want to state off right clear right from the very beginning that these seven letters are what we call circular letters they were written to seven literal churches Nowadays, there's a school of thought that says that these were not literal churches. They were uh, just um, uh, figurative, just to write, but it's not literally to seven churches. Um, There's no warrant for that, but that's how some people think. But I do believe these are seven literal churches. And so the seven churches uh, addressed here in chapter 2 and chapter 3 are significant because at the time of writing, which is close to the end of the first century, around 90-95 AD, at the time of writing, only um, John, let me put it this way. He wrote to these actual churches into, in these actual cities. And they were not the most prominent ones of the day, but they were specifically to these churches. Think about it. Out of these seven churches, there's only two that we read about early on in Scripture. Laodicea, as mentioned before. And of course, we all know about the church at Ephesus. right? But they were actual churches... With problems and strengths that were recorded in them. And this means, of course, that just as there was an Ephesian church in John's day, there was also a Laodicean church. So it's literal. I don't I want us to understand this is not some figurative thing that John is writing to us. These are literal churches, just like Lakeside Community Chapel is a literal church. Okay? I want to clear that up because I remember teaching, and there are times where students raise their hand, but prof. And then they start coming in with their arguments that it's not necessarily literal. And I I don't even want to get into all the details because it's not worth it. These are literal churches. And although there were many churches in that day, Jesus chose to address these seven specific churches. And they have been a source of deep, deep study, profound learning for many who have given them time to study. It's just, it's beautiful What, what you find in there. At times I find these letters, um, uh, the problem I have is that at times I find these letters are read and thought of as, yeah, it's relevant to the church in Ephesus back there, but we're 2,000 years later. Yes, the church in Smyrna, yes, but we're 2,000 years later and so we just give a brief reading and we don't take the time to see that there are some critical issues in these seven letters that are true for us. And so it's dangerous because see, if we neglect these seven churches, and then we're bound to basically repeat the things that they have done and face um, the discipline of Jesus Christ and so these letters were written to individual churches at the time, yes, but these churches are representative of churches throughout history because when you look at the problems that they've had you're going to find that a lot of churches today have the same problems right and so they they are literal churches, but they represent churches. Throughout the, uh, the history of the church So just as the letters to the Corinthians Though written to the church at Corinth Just as that letter is for us today So are these seven letters I think what happens is When people come to the book of Revelation They have this fear that Oh this is all weird and crazy language And nobody could understand it And so they assume that it's the same thing With these seven churches But it's not These are seven little ch- literal churches That we need to take heed to and I think that, I, I always ask uh, the question when people think that, this is, that it's figurative, I ask them this question. Why is it then that if these are figurative, why is it that he just chose these seven churches and not others? You think about it, there was church in Jerusalem, the church in Rome, right? The church in Alexandria and on and on. Why these seven? I think that argues for the fact that this, these were literal. Because if it was figurative, I would have chosen the church at Rome because it was a big church. Right. But not only that, in each of these letters, and this is, the, to me, the, the argument that just uh, uh, lays it out for me. In each of the letters, Jesus concludes with these very important words. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, churches. Very important to note that. Though each letter is written to a church, the promise is what? For all churches. So it's a literal church that he's writing to, but it is for us today, not something we put on the shelf and say, well, that's the book of Revelation, who nobody could understand it. Isn't it interesting that the book of Revelation promises a blessing for those who read it right at the very beginning? Blessed are those who read, take heed, or obey. There's a blessing for them. And so Jesus intended for all Christians throughout history All the way up to the present day to read and study and understand these seven churches so that we don't repeat What they've gone through So we don't have the option to neglect it. Yes, it is in the book of revelation and we don't have to be afraid of the book of revelation So we don't have the option to neglect it just because it's in the book of revelation and believe me There are people out there that would make that argument. I've heard it many times It's the book of revelation. I stay away from that book I've heard that many many times and we don't have that option. Jesus did not say That hey, if you want to read the book of Revelation and study these churches, you can if you don't want to that's okay That option is not open to us, right? So I want us to understand. Oh and one other thing. I just want to briefly mention Um, You might you may have heard this before or not. Uh, I don't know, but it's it, it had become popular there for a while There's one view that says each church represents a historical time period. In other words, for example, because Ephesians is the first church, it represents the early church from the time of, you know, John the Apostle up until the second and third century. And then the next church represents the next section of church history. And then, then of course, the last church is our history now. There's no warrant for that. I mean, I've read, and they have some amazing ways of arguing this, but all the arguments come up short. There's no warrant for that and I don't want to get into all the details of arguing it. It's not that way because the biggest argument that that I've argued this with others who held to it is why is it then that the problems in each of those churches have been in the church throughout history even to the present day? If what you're saying is true, then all the problems in, in the church of Ephesus should be in the first 300 years period, shouldn't be today. But it's not, we have the same problems today. And so it's not historical time periods, I don't think there's any warrant for that interpretation. So I'll just put that out there. There's a lot more that can be said, but I don't want to waste your time and bore you with the, those details. Now here's what I find interesting. The structure of chapter 2 and 3 with these letters addressing actual churches, they stand in contrast to the, uh, the, the, the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. Chapter 21 and chapter 22. Uh, When you look at it, it's actually quite fascinating. You know, in the seven churches, as you read through these seven churches, there are imperfections we're going to look at. But when you come to chapter 21 and 22, we look at those imperfections in the church and they become perfections in the presence of God. I just want to give you a few. I just want to mention a few just to show you. It's I, I, When I studied this and saw this, I thought, this is great. You can just jot down the passages and look at them yourselves. But in chapter 2, verse 2, we read of false prophets. Chapter 2, 2. In chapter 21, verse 14, you compare them to the true 12 apostles. So in the early church, there was false prophets. In the New Jerusalem in eternity, you have the true apostles, there's nothing false, right? In chapter 2, verse 9, and chapter 3, verse 9, you read about the false Jews, those who call themselves Jews but are not, and you compare uh, them to chapter 21, verse 12, and you have the names, the names of the true 12 tribes of Israel. So you have false Jews, True Israel. So note the the distinction. Another one. In chapter 2, verse 13, we read about Christians dwell where Satan's throne is. That's where we dwell right now, right? Who's the God of this world? Satan himself. And so he talks about Christians dwelling where Satan's throne is. Compare that to chapter 22, verse 1. And we read there that Christians dwell where God's throne is. Not the perfection right now there's imperfection over there when we're there there is absolute perfection in chapter three verse one we read that some in the church are dead it says that you have a name but you're really dead right in chapter three one Compare this, that all of us, or all of those who are in the New Jerusalem are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. There's no death whatsoever in the New Jerusalem. So there may be death in the church today. There are those who are not believers, right, who go to church. They're dead. But in the New Jerusalem, only true eternal life. There's no death. Okay. That's, uh, (coughs) excuse me, chapter 21, verse 27 in the New Jerusalem. In chapter 1 verse 20, and we see it again in chapter 2 verse 5, the church is, is uh, d- uh, described as a lamp, right? And it's a flickering lamp. In fact, in Ephesians, uh, the, the letter to the, uh, here, the first letter to the church at Ephesus talks about if they don't repent, he's going to pluck that lamp out. So it's a flickering lamp there in uh, chapter 1 verse 20, chapter 2 verse 5. Compare that to God and Jesus Christ, they are the eternal lamps in chapter 21 verse 23 and 24, and also in chapter 22, verse 5. So here it's temporary flickering lamp. There in eternity, we will have the eternal light of God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Stark contrast. In chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, and then also in verse 20, you see that the church is filled with idolatrous impurities. And we see that even today, right? a lot of idolatry, a lot of impurity. And also in chapter 2, 9, we read that there's liars. So you see that in the church, impurities, liars. But in chapter 21, verse 8 and verse 27, you read only about purity in the new creation. There are no such thing as liars. There's no element of impurity whatsoever. In that new creation let's give you one more there's many more but i'll just give you one more in chapter two verse eight through ten christians face persecution and they're hoping in god's promises to overcome right so there's persecution in fact pastor steve talked about persecution last week right there is persecution now you compare this to the new creation where they and this is chapter 22 just you could read through that where they where they reign and they have inherited the promises, and the promises are permanent. There's no more persecution. We will reign with Christ. So what you have is chapter 2 and 3. You have the imperfections of the church here, and they are radically transformed to absolute perfection there at the end when we are with Christ. And then, of course, Revelation talks about how all of that will come to an end. There's one other element that I think is uh, neat, if you take time to see it, is that each of the promises made to the overcomer, you know, at the, uh, at the uh, end of each letter, it says, those who overcome, there's a promise made. And each promise made to the overcomer is perfectly fulfilled in that new creation. For example, in chapter 2, verse 7, we talk about food. Okay, they will eat of uh, uh, the, 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 the tree of life. Chapter 22, verse 2, that's exactly what happens. There's a fulfillment of that promise. Talk about the temple in chapter 3, verse 12. We see the fulfillment in chapter 21, verse 22 that we will be in that. And on and on it goes. It talks about eternal security, incorruptible clothing, all of these things. But there's promises in each one of those promises to the overcomers. Each one can be seen in chapter 21 and 22 as ultimately fulfilled, completely fulfilled, permanently fulfilled. Fulfilled Which I think is to me it's 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 exciting Because it confirms to me the promises of Jesus Christ Now one other element that I want to uh, mention here before we get into the letters is that when you look at all seven letters What we see is that the church is what we call is to be Christocentric in other words Christ must be central in every way every church argues in these letters to the churches every letter to these churches argues for the centrality of Jesus Christ It's difficult to read these seven letters to the churches and not see Jesus Christ as the center of everyone He's the one who holds it together. He's the head of the universal church, but he's also the head of the local church He is the heartbeat He is the center of everything in the church Everything is to revolve around him. He is the Lord. Um, he solemnly reigns over all. As, as one teacher said, and I love what he said, he said, speaking of Jesus, he said, Jesus is himself the standard according to which the life of every congregation is judged and the one whose person and personality shape the beliefs and behavior of all. So every church, every church will be judged based on the centrality of Christ and how they reflect Christ in that church. He is central. Think about it in chapter one, we read of Jesus Christ um, walking among the lampstands, and we're told that the lampstands are the churches. So he walks among the lampstands. What does that tell us? That Christ walks among his church. He is sovereign, he is omnipresent, right? And so he knows all things in the life of every church, every congregation. He knows their commitment, he knows their trials. He knows the hardships he knows every circumstance of every person in each church he is not blind he walks in the midst he sees it all he sees everything thus the condition of every church is an open book before him he is here present walking in the midst of lakeside community chapel he knows it all and he reads every heart He evaluates every motive. He assesses every work. And he's going to bring every person into judgment or discipline according to how they've lived with that knowledge in mind. So right now, right here, he knows your thoughts. He knows your motives. He knows everything because he's right here. So with that in mind, what should our response be to this reality? Too many take it flippantly. When we come together as a congregation, Christ is right there, and he's evaluating everything. <coughs> what we do, how we do it, motives, thoughts. It sure puts things in a different perspective. That's why when we come to church, it should be not only the highlight of the week, but it should be a time where we are in awe and realize, whoa, whoa. The king of kings is walking and he knows my every thoughts, my every motive, everything I do and everything I don't do that I should do. He knows it all because he's present. That's what we see in these churches. So the spiritual condition of each church is only as good as the members faithfully adhering to his word, what Jesus teaches us. And that we maintained that witness to this community, and it's going to get worse. It's not going to get. uh, It's going to get more difficult. It's not going to get any easier, right? The way this world is going, the persecution will arise. The question is: Is will we continue to stand, or will we give in? Mm -hmm. Right. This deal about Jesus being in the church. There last week I was on security, and there was an elderly couple came in a little bit late. And the guy walks up to me and he says, Is Jesus in this church? Oh. The best way to tell is look at the church. Because I will say, does he walk amongst the church? Yes, but the true church. Because there's a lot of stuff out there called church that is not the church. He said afterwards when he opened by okay. he said, You were right. I just thought I had never heard that before. Yeah. Good question. And if the church is not Christ-centered, it will face His discipline. Because that's what He, gave, that's what he told the church at Ephesus, if you don't repent, you know what, I'm going to pluck your candle out. There is discipline, and we need to be aware of that. So that which is most significant, that which matters the most, more than anything else in the church corporately, and each individually, is do we reflect Jesus Christ in this church? That's the most important thing. It's not numbers, and it's not popularity and any of that. Do we reflect Jesus Christ? Is he central in this church? And that includes our lives when we go home. Because just because we go home, it doesn't mean, okay, I I no longer am at the church. No, church is not a building. The church is the body of Christ. Wherever you are, you represent the church. Important that we understand that. And sadly, in evangelicalism today, and it breaks my heart, Christ is not centered for many churches, because for many churches it's all about popularity, it's about numbers, entertainment, gimmicks, uh, you've got to draw in those numbers. I, it, it's unbelievable the things that people are doing. I remember one time a pastor giving a commercial on the radio talking about coming to his church on Easter. because. Uh, Who is it? Hoppity the rabbit is going to be there. And he took this picture and he's up on stage with the pastor. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? You're going to put a guy dressed up in a rabbit costume on stage behind the pulpit. It's outrageous what people will do. Absolutely outrageous. Christ never tells us to do that. In the final analysis, Jesus Christ does not care about numbers. He doesn't care about cultural relevance or social influence or financial prosperity of the church. He controls all of that. If he wants a church to be 10,000, he will bring 10,000 people to the church. But if he wants your church to be 100, then it's going to be 100 no matter what you do. He's the one that controls it all. Final analysis, he controls it. So... What matters most to Jesus and thus should matter most to us is three things, I believe. First, do we hold forth his name? Not only when we gather together, but even when we go home. Do we hold forth his name? Second, do we uh, we proclaim the gospel of which he's the center? In other words, do we proclaim a true gospel? A right gospel? And believe me, there are many, quote, so-called gospels out there. I've heard it. Do we proclaim the true gospel? And third, do we heed his word as the guidance for our lives? Does his word guide us and lead us and give us the wisdom that we need? Or do we listen to psychologists and counselors? I'm not saying we shouldn't go to them, but I'm talking about God's word here. Is that what guides us? Those are the three things that I believe matter most to Jesus Christ, because we're going to see these things in these seven churches. So we need to ask ourselves some questions. Are the ministries and programs of our church given shape by what Jesus prizes, by what Jesus wants? We need to ask ourselves that. Are what we do here at this church, are they governed by what Jesus wants? I believe they are. I know that um, when Pam and I were looking for a church, we went to several. Um, I always knew Steve. I knew I was going to visit this church eventually because he and I have been friends for many years. But um, one of the reasons that did draw us here is that, yeah, everything we've seen thus far, I believe is driven by this, uh, this reality that I believe it pleases Jesus Christ. We want to operate and function and do what we do based on his word It's to proclaim him not ourselves. I appreciate that about Steve. You'd be surprised. I one time was at a church. I actually worked with a fellow who was a pastor who literally would stand up. I am not exaggerating, who would literally stand up and say, I'm the best preacher in Pasco County. Oh, my goodness. oh he said it so many times. It made me sick. The too. <laughs> and and when, when I confronted him about it, you know what he would tell me? That's just confidence. It's not arrogance. So it's up there. I'm telling you it's up there. I've seen it and that's one of the reasons why we drive as far as we do to get here. Second question you need to ask yourself is Jesus Christ prized above all earthly treasures. In your life and in this church, is Jesus Christ prized more than anything and everything else? If it's not, then we got issues. If you feel that it's not, then you need to address that with somebody. Talk to one of the elders. Okay, but if you feel that we are not treasuring Christ above all things, then that needs to be dealt with. Otherwise, we will not be blessed by Jesus Christ. And then uh, the third question, which is a difficult question, is faithfulness unto death an easy choice for those of us who are in the church? If it comes down to it, where you are demanded not to worship Christ, will you be willing to lay your life down and say, then kill me, but I will worship Jesus Christ. Easier said than done now, but when you see a gun at pointed at your head, will you do it? I remember a gentleman one time telling me the story that he was out on the streets in a, a place that was very antagonistic to the gospel. and He was preaching the gospel and the guy held a gun. He said, you will stop or I pull the trigger. He looked at him and said, Then pull the trigger because you'll send me to Jesus. <laughs> and the guy just looked at him. And he says, You need to stop. He says, I'm not going to stop. Pull the trigger and you send me to Jesus. The guy walked away just shaking his head, thinking, This guy's nuts. I pray God give me that kind of courage and boldness. All right? So, all these things are critical at the churches to be Christocentric. So, with that little background, I want us to start in the book or in the book, I'm thinking of Ephesians, the letter to the church at Ephesus there in chapter 2 verses 1 through 7. And um, what, I, what I would like for us to do is take a moment and let's learn about the city of Ephesus. If we're going to understand this letter, we need to understand the background of Ephesus at this time in the late first century. Um, And there are many who believe that the reason that this first letter was written to the church at Ephesus is because it was one of the most important cities of the time. And it was incredibly important. It was the most important political center of all time at that time. Ephesus quickly became a center of commerce and trade. A lot of money, a lot of people going in and out. It was one of the most uh, prosperous provinces. It belonged to one of the most prosperous provinces in Asia Minor at the time. It's hard to say, I know. But during the reign of Augustus, it was Ephesus and Pergamum that were rivals for prominence. Ephesus became the greatest city of the area and it thrived commercially. I mean, it was active. There was a lot there financially. A lot of stability, okay? At the time of the writing of this letter, the city of Ephesus had grown to 250,000 people. Now that's a fairly large city today. But in that day, it was extremely large. In fact, some have called it the New York City of the ancient world. It was, it did become, and it was the capital of Asia Minor. And it it became the residence of the Apostle John after he left the the Isle of Patmos. So it flourished as an important commercial and export center for Asia. Very, very wealthy. Very, very busy. A lot of activity. You couldn't compare it. you, You can't even compare it to Tampa, as busy Tampa is, Because it was even busier, more affluent in that day. And so it had the geographical priority as well of the best port of entry. That's where the ships would come in. So you have all of this coming into Ephesus. Massive city, incredible importance, a lot of money, and everything that goes with it. Just like what you would see in places like New York City or L.A., Things like that. In Scripture, we are commanded to pray for our leaders, right? <clears throat> in, in 1 Peter 2.17, 1 Timothy 2.12, we are to pray for our leaders, those in office. We're commanded that. However, in Ephesus, worship of the Roman emperor was not optional. It was mandatory. Okay, there was a law, okay? Prayer to him was normative. You were to pray to the ruler. Today we honor presidents in the past by naming libraries and other historical artifacts after them. In Ephesus, there were temples dedicated to the idolatrous worship of these emperors. Emperors such as Claudius, Hadrian, Julius Caesar, Augustus, and others. And this was, of course, to further the imperial cult of worship. This is going on every day in the city of Ephesus, the worship of emperors. In fact, it appointed temple wardens for the worship of emperor. And every day, every day, those who are Christians in Ephesus pass these imposing structures, going about their daily tasks, a pagan atmosphere all around them. As they'd walk down the street to go to work, or to go shopping, to do whatever, this is what they would see, and this is what they would hear. People worshiping these pagan emperors, right? Not only that, Roman prefects forced the people to worship the emperor Domitian. They forced them to kneel and to utter the words, Caesar is Lord. That's how serious it got. Now Christians were un- uh, unwilling to place Caesar, above Christ because they of course would utter the motto Jesus is Lord as a result many were severely persecuted others were killed as a result Because they refused to bow the knee and declare Caesar is Lord. That is the Ephesus of that day And then of course when the Roman authorities realized that Christians were indifferent to them that they didn't care about the Caesars that would make things even more difficult. They were not very tolerant of Christians. You sort of get the sense today that we're sort of following the same things you know, in our culture. People are no longer tolerant with, uh, with Christians anymore. Very sad. In fact, that these Roman authorities so abhorred the absolutism, that they were absolute about what they believed, that they wanted to uh, eliminate Christianity. That's why there was such severe persecution. But the Christians continued to reject even a token of obedience to that uh, that worship. They refused to bow the knee, and they would rather <clears throat> they would rather um, face the persecution, face the suffering. And it didn't stop there, because in Ephesus the relationship between the worship of Artemis or Diana and the state religion of Rome was close, because Ephesus not only had all of this affluence. But they were a seeding cauldron of countless cults, countless cults, uh, uh, countless superstitions. They were a very, quote, religious city. Religious life revolved around the cult of the worship of Diana. This was the Greek goddess of fertility. You've probably heard of of, uh, this goddess. The city housed a very large temple that at one time was burned down and rebuilt in 356 B.C and it was regarded as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a massive building. It was, uh, and remember, this is back then. It's not like they had what we have today to build buildings. But the temple was 425 feet long, two hundred seventy uh, 220 feet wide, so it's 95,500 square feet. That's a massive building for this uh, goddess. It was 65 feet high. They had over 127 pillars all around, made of marble, Thirty-six were overlaid with gold. But not only that, the temple housed criminals and prostitutes. Because you see, if you were to commit an act of crime, you could flee to that temple and the law could not come in and get you. And so that's what criminals would do. And so this temple housed an incredible number of criminals and prostitutes. It uh, It was immoral. Uh, that what, what went on inside and not only was it immoral, but they used that immorality as worship The prostitutes in their acts would be worshiping these this god this goddess And so this is what happened. This is what's happening in <laughs> Ephesus with the god uh, goddess of uh, Diana In the midst of such a culture we have this church of Ephesus It was established by Paul. You could read about it in Acts chapter 18. And of course, Ephesus had some great spiritual leaders throughout its time. You have Aquila, Priscilla, Apollos, Timothy, John. But what I find amazing is that, and I think it's significant, that the first church to receive a letter directly from Jesus Christ was located in a city that was not even remotely close to being Christian. As pagan as it can be, there were no laws in Ephesus to protect their freedom of religious expression. In fact, many times, the law fought against their religious expression, the freedom. See, today in our country, we still have laws in place to protect Christians and the freedom to worship. In Ephesus, they didn't have that, right? Back in that day, the worship of false deities was institutionalized. Worship the pagan gods. The only thing on which the Ephesian believers could rely were two God and one another. That's all they had. They couldn't rely on the law. They couldn't rely on the government. They couldn't rely on anything else but on God and themselves. Yet, as you read through the book, or I'm sorry, as you read through this letter, you find that they labored faithfully for the gospel. They endured patiently a lot of suffering. They were intolerant of the evil. And the church did have its problems, as we will see, but the members did not abandon their faith. So they were a small church in a pagan society, but they endured. So as I was studying this, the question came to mind. I thought, how would we fare in such a condition? See, we have protection. They didn't. How would we fare in such a situation? Sadly, in hearing many Christians talk, and I've heard them talk, it seems like they believe the church in America can survive only if we have legislative protection and we have the politically right people in office. So make sure you vote for the conservative who will go against the liberal. Otherwise, the church will die out. There's a lot of people in our churches that believe that. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't vote. Yes, vote conservative. We want to remove those, um, the, the, those that think against the church. But that's not what protects the church, right? So it's good to vote for those who are conservative and fight against the liberal policies. But the problem is that we've come to depend on that for the protection of the church, and that's wrong. In fact, that's idolatry, Right? And so much so we fear the church will not last and we fear that the church would be destroyed if the wrong people get in office I mean, it's it's amazing what I hear that come from the lips of people who call themselves Christians But Jesus told us what about, uh, about uh, the church in hell? He says the gates of hell will not prevail Okay, so my protection, it doesn't come from who's in office My protection comes from Almighty God, the Lord Jesus Christ himself Whether the church flourishes or does not flourish is not dependent upon who's in office, but who sits on the throne. Right? So yes, we should vote and we should vote wisely. But not because, oh, we have to vote this person in so it protects the church. Our protection does not come from government. So what's important to understand is that the church in Ephesus and the other local congregations knew nothing of the religious freedom that we experience. And yet, they survived. The church is still around 2,000 years later. We survived. And so, in the midst of what we see as state-sanctioned idolatry and immorality, the church continued, and the church survived. So when we look at the condition of our country and the way it's going, and it's rapidly declining, please understand, before we panic or lose heart, We need to remember meditate on the promise that Jesus gave in Matthew 16 18 upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades the gates of hell will not overpower it Have you ever contemplated that promise? Because I I think sometimes you get it backwards What are gates for? To keep people out, right? I put up a gate because I don't want people coming into my yard He calls it the gates of hell Who's on the defense? Who's on the defense? Hell Hell is on the defense and what are they defending against? The church because the church continues to make progress and what does he say? It doesn't matter what the defenses are that hell produces, they will not prevail against the body of Christ. So rather than be up in a panic and be afraid, we're the ones that should stand Solid, realizing, wait a minute, I have nothing to fear. My king still reigns. Okay, it doesn't matter who's in office, it doesn't matter what the laws state, it doesn't matter what people declare. Jesus Christ still reigns in the church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Hold on to that promise. So, with that background in mind, let's look at Ephesians chapter 1 or I'm sorry, (laughs) sorry, forgive me for that slip. Revelation chapter two, verses one through seven, and let's read through it. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, you can well know that we're not going to finish this passage today. (laughs) Not even close, okay. But there's so much here. Just, Just to start off, just to put this out there, when it says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, I really don't want to get into a deep discussion of that because there's so many arguments um, for uh, who it represents. Some see this as an actual angel that watches over a particular church, and there's some good arguments for that. I, I've read them, and they're from solid guys with good, good arguments. Others uh, see this messenger as just that. It's a, there's a particular messenger assigned to each church, and so it's, a, it's a, some messenger, and there's a. Pretty decent uh, arguments for that as well. Others see this as the pastor for each church. Okay, It's, a, it's written to them. And the reality is, is that it's very difficult to determine which one it is. But the other reality is that it doesn't matter which view you hold, the truth is still the same. Okay, So it's very difficult. If pressed, I would argue that it represents the pastor of the church, but I won't be dogmatic. Okay, There's just too many good arguments all the way around. But the bottom line is, is that the interpretation, the understanding of the passage does, is not affected whether you think it's an angel, a messenger, or a pastor. Okay. So just want to throw that out there. But notice what happens here in the very first verse, we begin with a description of Jesus Christ. And this description emphasizes that Jesus Christ is sovereign over the church. Talked about it, but he uh, he emphasizes it here in the very first ver- uh, very first verse. Now, when we see when we say that Jesus Christ is sovereign over the church, most Christians would agree with this thought. Most Christians that I have come across say yes, he's sovereign; he's the head of the church, and they are diligent to affirm that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Uh, it's the only infallible truth that we should govern our lives by. Most Christians I know would agree with that. But the problem I'm having is that many will say yes to that. But when you look at the way they live or you look at these churches that that are run, you begin to wonder whether they truly believe that or not. See, when you look at how they structure their churches or when they formulate their beliefs or cast their vision, you begin to question whether they truly believe the Bible is the inerrant and fallible word of God. I've read some doctrinal statements from churches. When I used to look, you know, send my resume out, and they would send me their doctrinal statement, I would just say, I can't take this church. I, I just pull my resume. I mean, some of the things that they would say—it's say, not even biblical. Absolutely amazing. So yes, they would claim. You know, my first question is, what do you think of of Jesus Christ and what do you think of of Scripture? So of course they tell me what they believe, and say, yeah, okay, that sounds good. Let me read your doctrinal statement, and I'm saying, okay, what you say, you believe. And what you have written down on paper are two separate things. So yes, there's a lot of Christians who claim they believe this. But when you look at what they literally actually believe, you begin to question. There's a big chasm between what they claim to be their theological affirmations, their doctrine, what they claim to believe, and what the Bible actually has to say. So we have to be careful here. Many times the Bible is simply a token authority. It's biblical. Really? Just because you quote a verse here and there doesn't make it biblical. I know people who use the Bible to teach um, inaccurate doctrine all the time. So, uh, I, I think we have to be careful here. Uh, just, if Sam Storms, uh, who talks of this, he says how these people appear to care so much for the Word of God, but then you don't. He makes a statement, he says, they elevate sociological trends in marketing surveys and demographic studies, together with the felt needs of the congregation, they elevate that above the principles and choose the Scripture itself. And it's true. I've seen this. In fact, I took a church growth class one time just out of curiosity. And that's exactly what they taught. Very little about God's Word, but they're talking about uh, demographics, you know, focus on one demographic, and that's who you go after. And I'm thinking, really? So the gospel is going to be focused on one group of people? The gospel is for all. But it's popular. I, I, I could bring in, right now I could bring in five, six books that'll, that's, that's all they write about. And I have serious issues with that. I took one class and I never took another class. In fact, I wanted my money back for that class. I thought it was a waste <laughs> of time. It's ridiculous. But that's what they, when I took a, my, a, a preaching class, the first preacher, I never took this professor again. But they taught, you got to preach the felt needs of the congregation. Where are they? What are they experiencing? Their felt needs. I was young, green back then. I didn't really know that much. But I look back and I think, I want to vomit that I took that class. Felt needs? I don't know of any greater need than salvation. I don't know of any greater need than life committed to Jesus Christ. But we don't preach the felt needs of people. And yet, you can go down up and down these roads. Most of your mega churches, that's what they do. I've done a study on megachurches and what they, they follow is actually very frightening, very frightening. It's, it's just, it's sad. Now, no doubt there are things we can consider uh, and there are things we could learn from looking around and looking, looking at the community to see what's out in the community and so forth that we could learn. But that should never ever influence uh, the effect of God's Word upon our lives. That's critical. And so in this verse, verse 1, it's deeply and profoundly significant that they are the words of Jesus Christ himself to this very church. As I said, I know that all scripture is God-breathed, and all of it is for us. Um, I I agree with that, but these uh, seven letters are the direct and explicit address of Jesus Christ to each church, as I mentioned earlier. And He addresses them. He addresses them with statements. He addresses them with assertions He addresses them with theological concepts doctrinal truths and more and we're gonna look at that as we work through this But he is the one who's addressing them. So it's vital that we take heed to this and we will dig in when we uh, When we work through this But it's in each letter what you will see is that the written Christ presents himself in a particular way And each way that he addresses himself, it's going to address the needs of that church. And a lot of it goes back to chapter 1. I would encourage you to read through chapter 1 because you see the description of Jesus Christ in chapter 1. And that description is going to come out in each of these seven letters. And it's for a purpose for each uh, each church. And so we see that uh, Jesus Christ has a watchful relationship to local churches and their leaders. And we see this. In verse 1, I'm going to look at this next time we gather uh, more detail. But we see this. First, he is seen as holding fast the seven stars of the angels. Okay? Right. Chapter 1, we read that those stars are the pastors or the leaders. So he holds them in his hand. Secondly, he is walking in the midst of the churches. So note his sovereignty here. He holds the leaders in their hand, his hands and he walks in the midst of the church. That's God's divine sovereignty, Jesus Christ's divine sovereignty over the church. So let's look at the first one, the one one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. That word to hold comes from the Greek word krateo, which refers to hold with authority. Jesus Christ has authority over the leaders of the church. It basically emphasizes very graphically That Jesus Christ is sovereign. That's why he uses that particular word. So at the right hand, and again, they're at the right hand, the right hand was a symbol of honor. So Jesus Christ holds the leaders, his right hand. That's what he thinks of those who lead his churches and do it uh, biblically, right? And so Jesus holds the messengers or leaders, or basically the churches with his power and place of honor, and he holds them because they belong to him. He owns them. He owns us. He died for us. He redeemed us. So we belong to him. That's what he tells us here. He has redeemed the church by his blood, and at no time, at no time, does the church slip from his grip, or elude his grip, or operate under its own authority. Jesus Christ maintains his sovereignty even in the midst of a rebellious church. He still maintains his sovereignty And in his sovereignty he will close out that church or he will remove the leader or He will remove the people and replace them with others, but he still maintains that authority and that control So he holds them What he says goes that's why it's critical that we honor him through his word And that's why Jesus could say that the gates of hell will not prevail because he already conquered hell, didn't he? And so the church will as well because we're in his hands. So as difficult as uh, church life can become, and many times it does, Christ never ceases to be its sovereign. So no matter how difficult it may be, no matter what you go through, always remember, God's in the right hand of Jesus Christ. He is the sovereign one who holds the leaders and holds the church. Now, one point of clarification that I made earlier and I want to repeat, this is referring to the genuine church, not to the many false churches that are out there, okay? Like the Church of Scientology is not a true church, Christ is not sovereign over that in the sense that he is over the church. He's sovereign over all, of course, but in a different way. Same thing with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and all these other things, okay? And there's many so-called churches that claim to be true churches and are not, and they continue to thrive, but please understand. Please, please understand that because a church, quote, is thriving because you see the numbers in the big buildings, it doesn't mean that that church is a church that is um, submitting to the uh, Lordship of Christ. In fact, I would dare say, and I know people will be upset with me, but I'm going to say it anyway. I would dare say that the majority of your megachurches, not all, but the majority of your megachurches will fall under that. I've visited a few, and everyone that I've visited... I would never go to. I would never recommend them neither. Most of them are all based on all the other stuff we talked about, as far as gimmicks and getting people in and so on and so forth. Okay, so personally for me, I don't look for mega churches. If there's a mega church nearby, I'd rather drive down the road and find another one, another church. That's just me. I know some people would disagree, and that's okay. We're still brothers and sisters in Christ. So Jesus holds authority, every true church, in his hand, right? Hell's gates cannot stand against it. Therefore, we are secured victory. So we don't have to panic because we're in the right hand of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I did a lot of talking here. We only have a minute left. So is there any questions? And we'll put, we're going to pick up from here next time I teach. But any questions or comments? Yes. Yeah, what of, like, I was just thinking because I didn't think of it that way. So I wonder if that's like, you know, going into the church, going, invading into the dark places that the evil, you know, the church, you know, the church goes sure. in and in those places, right? Is that it's it's everywhere. Think about it. Who's the God of this world? Satan is. We are in enemy territory right now. We are. We're in enemy territory. And we continue to go. Why? Because hell cannot stop us. Satan hates it, but he can't stop us because the church is the body of Christ. Yes. The first three questions, I'm not sure. Uh, Oh, we we have to ask ourselves some questions? Oh, okay. Yeah, we have to ask ourselves, are the ministries and programs of our church energized and given shape by what pleases Jesus Christ? Okay, number one. Number two, is Jesus prized above all earthly treasures? And number three, is faithfulness unto death an easy choice for those of us who are in the church? Those are questions we need to ask if we're going to be a Christ-centered church. Okay, well, let's go ahead and pray and we will stop. I'm going to stop this now.